The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 11. Uh, We are in the last chapter of our 22-week journey through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, It's been a long road, but it's been a good one. Uh, This series is called Our Story Begins. And even though the Bible is first and foremost God's big story, the little story of all of humanity is contained within it. Uh, Because of God's never beginning and never ending love for us, he has mercifully included us in the grandest of all narratives and allowed us to participate in his eternally perfect purposes. For this we are grateful. Uh, Last week we finished up chapter 10. It's commonly referred to as the Table of Nations. It shows us our common ancestry, but also God's clear desire for diversity. If you missed those, those are available online. Uh, This week we're going to read what is a fairly famous account of the Tower of Babel, where mankind once again flexes their foolishness And we see God's patient and merciful response. So we're going to read Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9 together. I hope you're there. Uh, If not, if you don't have a Bible with you, verses will be on the screen. We also have Bibles available for free. If you don't have a Bible uh, at the end of the service, just let us know that. We buy them by the crate because we want everybody that wants a Bible to have a Bible uh, because God's Word is crucial uh, for us to survive as humans. It it is our, our bread and our life, so we're thankful for God's Word. And we have those available, so let us know, okay? Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Here we go. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they begin to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Praise God for his word. Uh, There are many who see an intentional irony in this account, besides the fact that this basically looks like the biggest practical joke ever pulled, right? God comes down and kind of Boom, now you guys can't talk to each other, tee-hee-hee, right? So that's kind of funny. But aside from that, uh, there's, there's also some irony, and it's, it's most pointedly obvious in the contrast between verses 4 and 5. Let's, let's look at those again. Uh, verse 4, they said, the people, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. He came down to see the city. Uh, it, it's it's kind of like this. Um, yesterday, my son Max, he's five. Um, he comes up to me and he says, I'm sitting down. He says, Dad, don't move and stare your eyes at me. Okay, so that's how he starts. <laughs> he says, I'm going to jump as high as you are. Now, I had to decipher that. I'm like, dude, I'm not jumping. So what he means, though, is he's going to jump over me, right? That's what he thinks he's going to do. So dad, don't move. Stare your eyes at me. I'm like, okay, I'm going to jump as high as you are. I'm like, all right. So I put, put my coffee way out of reach. I don't know what's about to happen totally. Is he coming at me? What's this, what's this going to look like? So, so he just jumps in place pretty, you know, does his best, jumps in place. Uh, after several, dad, are you looking? It's like, bro, we are locked eyes. What do you mean? You're looking at me, looking at you like, yes, I see you. Do it, okay? Do the thing, whatever you're doing. So, so he, jumps, he jumps as high as he can, and, and then, you know, it's, dad, dad, did I jump as high as you are? Did I do it? And it's like, you know, I don't want to lie. I don't want to set that precedent, but I also don't want to crush the guy. So I'm like, 
you know what, you jumped really high, buddy, and it was, it was close. You did good. That's, that's kind of the humor that's here, because in, in verse 4, mankind thought they were going to build something so high that they would get on equal ground with God. But God says, oh, okay, you're done? All right, so let, let me come down now. <laughs> let me come down and see what you got going on here. There, and the Bible's full of subtle little kind of sarcasm and hints of humor there that sometimes we would miss, but that, that, there's a joke in here, uh, whether or not you choose to laugh at it. God's kind of saying, uh, you, did, you did good, buddy. You did as good as you could. Nice job. All right. Let's move along. Uh, though there is some irony here, really this also illustrates the, the tragedy of our forgetfulness. Uh, we as humans uh, too often miscalculate or just plain forget how much greater and higher and more holy God is than we are. This leads to a lack of reverence and submission without which we can never properly relate to our Creator. Oftentimes we struggle with finding the narrow gospel path in terms of how we relate to God. See, some, some see themselves as so unworthy and God as so distant that they dare not try to approach Him at all. On several occasions, I've, I've invited somebody to come to gather here with God's people uh, and to be a part of what's happening. And uh, most of the time, this is in the context of being out on the streets doing evangelism, uh, just trying to share the good news about Jesus and, and invite people to be a part of the life of the church. And in doing that, I've had people say to me on more than one occasion, very sadly, that they, and I don't, maybe they're joking a little bit, but it, it kind of reveals this deeper belief they have. They, they said to me, you you don't understand how bad I am. If I walk in the door of the church, the church will burn down. That's kind of the mentality and where they find themselves. And that's, that's a really tragic ditch on kind of one side in terms of how we relate to God. On the other side, some see, because they understand what the Bible teaches, that they are invited to enter God's throne room boldly as children of promise because of Jesus. These are good things to know. But they forget that our invitation to come close does not erase the need for reverence. Esther the queen, if you look at the book of Esther, she came into the court of her husband, the king, to request that the lives of her people would be spared. Actually, she requested he comes to dinner and does it there. She feeds him before she tries to get him to do something for her. Not a bad idea. Uh, honestly, but uh, she's pretty smart. So, but, but the way she comes into the court to even ask him to come to the dinner, um, this is her husband, remember? She walks into his presence. He's the king. First of all, she waits for his acknowledgement, and then she starts with this phrase. She says, if it pleases the king, and then gives her request. What she didn't do is, you know, kick open the door to the throne room and start shouting like, Yo, boo, check it out. Haman's tripping. You better get your boy. That's not how Esther went at it. She came in. She waited for the king. Now, this is her husband, yes? She's the queen. And yet she still understands there's a reverence because of who the king is. The point is, we are invited to come close to our king and even embrace him as Father, but we must also revere his holiness and majesty. Understanding his thoughts and ways are far above our own. There's a tension there. There's two ways to get that wrong, and there's a gospel middle that helps us understand. Yes, we are children. Yes, I want my kids to know they can come into my presence, that I want them near me, but that doesn't mean they can come in and just talk to me however they want to talk to me. And I'm just an earthly dad. I'm not a king. I'm, not, I'm nobody special, right? We've got to understand the duality of that. Okay. Uh, just in general about these nine verses, many have questioned the existence of the Tower of Babel. Again, a lot of times just looking at ancient things in the Bible, there's questions about whether or not it actually even existed. Uh, and it can be hard to document anything. We do actually have one ancient Greek historian. His name was Herodotus. And he said he saw the remains of the tower in, in Babylon in his day. Uh, we're not totally sure if what he saw actually was the Tower of Babel, but he was there and he thought he saw it. So he gave some description of what he saw. Uh, just for your sake, I, there's, I've seen this and, and I know it to be true. There's, there's many artist renditions of the Tower of Babel and they kind of show a round, kind of looking Italian-looking thing. Uh, 
it's more likely that it was square or rectangular as opposed to round, uh, resembling something closer to the pyramids in Egypt. Okay, so not just the pyramids in Egypt, but interestingly also structures found in, in Central and South America. Um, and here's the thing about those structures. Modern scientists still aren't sure how some of these structures could have been built by ancient people, uh, but it's very possible that the knowledge of how to build such things, these kind of structures, originated at the Tower of Babel and spread throughout the world as people were dispersed from there. Uh, that's one way that could have went down. There is a deep and profound principle revealed in what God says here in these scriptures. So let's look again at verse 6. It says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. There's this key phrase that says, They are one people. One of our core values here at Love City is that the church should strive to live in unity. And if you go look up the definition of unity... What it really boils down to is a couple synonyms, wholeness and oneness. God said they're one people, and there were some implications he gave of that. That's real important. And, and, and the question I have for you is, is friends, I mean, can, <laughs> do you not think, let me say this phrase again, nothing they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Don't you yearn? Doesn't some part of you at least yearn for that to be said of us? As we seek to fulfill the mission God gave us, to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Nothing they purpose to do will be impossible to them. Why? Because they are one people of one mind, moving in one direction. This is the idea behind unity. Why does it seem that our efforts are sometimes hindered and we don't have the unstoppable momentum is really what God describes here in Genesis 11. Why is that? Well, it's because oftentimes we are lacking true unity as God's people. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 17. I was going to just read these verses to you, but I really want you to put your eyes on them. John chapter 17. Okay, we're going to be in verse 13 together. John 17, verse 13. Now, I think it's important as we go into this subject to say that unity is not uniformity. We can be very different in many ways and be in unity with one another. As a matter of fact, diversity within the body of Christ is without a doubt one of our greatest strengths, and we covered that at length last week. This portion of scripture, John 17, is known as the high priestly prayer. And that's because as we read it, we're going to see that Jesus is actually praying and interceding for us. In addition to this being the longest prayer recorded that we have from the master in all the scriptures, it is also a beautiful example of his position as high priest of the new covenant. And what that means, just quickly, is that in, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was a high priest. There was a whole system of priests that basically they stood in in between God and the people. They did the sacrifices. They, they were the ones that atoned for the sin of the people. There was a, a whole class that, that that's who they were. They were the priests. And what Jesus, when Jesus came, when Jesus lived the perfect life, when he died in our place for our sins, when his blood, the perfect and last lamb, was slain so that our sins could be forgiven, that the system of, of those human priests was no longer needed. Jesus became the high priest who now stands in between the people of God and God himself, uh, making intercession for us. And that's precious, and that's part of what we see here happening in John 17. This is also the last thing that Jesus prays before Judas comes to betray him, uh, so it's probably pretty important. This gives us a window into the mind of the master as he's about to approach his betrayal, his crucifixion, and ultimately his ascension. And so this is what's on his mind. 
And so as we read this, think this is what matters to Jesus in some of the last moments he has as he's walking out the incarnation. Uh, these are things that we should join in praying. These are, this is prayers we should hope to try to answer. Uh, we have an opportunity by obeying God and by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit to be an answer to Jesus' prayers here, which to me is a precious and special thing, knowing how much Jesus loves us and all that he's done for us. So let's read verses 13 through 23 together. Uh, the, the principle laid out in Genesis 11 is that because they were one people, one people, now what they set out to do, nothing will be impossible for them. Of course, that's kind of working in reverse of what we're talking about here, but, but it, it establishes this principle of the, the importance and the power of unity, and we're going to see how Jesus talks about that as he prays. Verses 13 through 23. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's talking about the 12 disciples. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who's that? It's you, dear friend, if you're a believer today. Amen. So Jesus is praying for you here. This is not by extension. This is not vicarious. This is direct. You're hearing the heart of the master towards you. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Whew, that's good. Let's just run through this. Verse 13, why is Jesus praying this? I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus wants to see his people full of joy. Uh, I'm going to just ride the coats of John Piper here and give him full credit for this saying. It's kind of the anthem of his life, but God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And uh, I appreciate that anthem. It echoes true here. Jesus is praying this. Uh, he wants our joy to be full. Verse 18, let's look at that. It says, as you sent me into the world. Okay, so he's talking to the Father. So as, as the Father sent Jesus into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So the question we have to ask there is, how, <laughs> I think sometimes uh, there's a disconnect between what Jesus does or is doing and what we're doing. But the question I would ask you is, so God sends Jesus into the world on a mission. How important was that mission? Like rate it one to 10 for me. Go ahead. Jesus' mission. 11, thank you. Yes, right? We broke the meter. It's shattered. Okay? But what does Jesus say? In the same way you sent me, I'm sending them. So what does that do? That should, that should under, help us understand that Jesus coming, yes, absolutely the most important mission, the mission of all missions, but really his commission for us is a continuation of his mission. He gave us the torch so that he was the light of the world as he walked here, but he's given us that torch and asked us to continue to carry it. And so our mission is as important as Jesus' mission. It's a continuation of it, and we need to understand that. We need to let that drive us towards intentionality. We need to be purposeful in the way we think about time, talent, treasure, and the expending of resources that God has entrusted to us. The mission is important. I already pointed out to you that verse 20, without a doubt, shows us that Jesus is praying this for us. He is praying about unity in his body, not just then. He says it plain as day, not just for these guys that I got right now, but for those that are going to believe as a result of their word. Unity within his church is 
it seems to be numero uno on his list of importance as he goes backward in time and is about to run out, knowing if you, the, the heading in my Bible of the very next chapter is Judas betrays Jesus. This is what he's thinking about. This is what he's praying about. This is what he's focused on the minutes and the hours before his betrayal. Unity among his people. Verse 21 sets for us a very high bar of unity, and it shows us its incredible evangelistic value. 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Stop. What that does right there is forces us that to look at no matter how great of a job or crummy of a job we're doing walking in the unity of the Spirit as God's people today, we never, ever stop pursuing a higher level of unity in the Spirit because the bar being set is that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. All right? You can't get any closer than the Trinitarian Godhead and their, the eternal love that they've shared before the foundations of the world, right? They, but Jesus does that all the time to us because he's smart and he knows that we get lazy sometimes and he knows that we like to sit back on our haunches and just kind of ride the laurels of our past uh, successes or what we think are successes. But what he does here is sets a bar that we can't reach until that great and glorious day where we stand in his throne room, okay? And so that means we never get to stop caring about unity. We never get to stop talking about it. This may be, this is a core value here at Love City Church. When it comes up in the verses, we don't shirk away from it. We're going to hammer down on it, drill down on it, and talk about it a lot. And that's going to keep on happening because no matter how good we're doing at it, we have to answer the call to keep pressing and growing in what it looks like for us to reflect the oneness of Jesus and the Father in the way we relate to one another. And why is that important? He says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Big, big implication here. So that the world may believe that you sent me. You tracking with that? That's a big deal right there. What that means is the unity of God's people is one of the primary ways the world is going to understand that Jesus was actually sent by God the Father, that he wasn't just some prophet, or he wasn't crazy, or he wasn't a liar, but indeed what he came was preached a message that is true, and that when he died upon the cross and his blood flowed down into the dirt that day, that actually redemption was purchased for mankind, and then when he rose up out of the grave, that wasn't something cooked up by his disciples, but it was real, and power has gone forth, and his gospel message actually reaches into the hearts of people and changes them to a degree that they can walk in a unity that would reflect the unity of God the Father and Jesus the Son. When people look at the Christian community, when people look at followers of Christ, what they should see is something so dazzling, so beautiful in terms of the unity that it, it, it makes them, they, they would have to question how it's possible without supernatural intervention. It matters. It matters very much. Uh, I know some of you have seen this before because I've, I've shown it to you, but uh, verse 23 shows us a historical fact that some people miss. Um, before run DMC, there was His Majesty JC. This is actually the first rap ever recorded. Verse 23. Uh, I had to try really hard not to read it the way that I see it because I would have given this away beforehand. But really, I, I, can't, I can't unhear this when I look at verse 23. Okay? Because really, it, it, has to, it has to sound like this. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world will now see I love you and you love me, right? It's, it, it looks like a rap to me. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And it's John 7, 23. <laughs> Jesus was the first rapper, man. 
good stuff. <laughs> Woo! I don't think the rhyming was on accident. What does all that tell us? What are these, what are these 10 verses showing us? It shows us that we must care more about unity than we do our own opinions. We need to care more about unity than we do being right. We need to care more about unity than our feelings. And we need to understand our unity is one of the most vibrant proofs that the gospel has the power to change people. Uh, I've heard an expression now three times in the last few weeks that I had not heard previously. Actually, someone walked in today with a shirt that said this. I've not heard this phrase in all of my life somehow, and now I've seen it three times in the last couple weeks. And that phrase is, thick as thieves. And uh, in the context I heard it the first time, I understood what it meant, that basically what that means is for someone to say that people are thick as thieves, that they are, they're very close. Their camaraderie is very vibrant. They are for each other, and they've got each other's back. And I heard it once, I heard it twice, and then tonight it was on a t-shirt. And uh, it's very interesting to me that when people were trying to come up with an analogy of intense closeness and really having each other's back, I say interesting, but I kind of mean sad, that thick as thieves is the way that that's described. My hope would be that if, if love and unity was as profound among God's people as Jesus prayed for it to be, that maybe, maybe at some point the culture, when they're trying to think, how do I... I need an analogy to describe a group of people that are just super close and always have each other's back. It's a band of brothers and sisters, and, and, and they're going to be for each other all the time. Maybe it would be close as Christians instead of thick as thieves. It, it's kind of sad to me that when people think about people very loyal to one another and really in, in, in the tight bond of, of unity, that thieves are the ones that come to mind. I understand the genesis of the comment. I know why people say that, but I think oftentimes if folks were stretching for an example to explain, wow, these people have a very close relationship and they're very much for each other, for, sadly, the Christian community maybe doesn't come to mind as a way they would help describe and understand that. Uh, I think Jesus wanted us to be. Do you think he did? I think he did. Amen. The truth is we will have to fight for unity. And I know that sounds kind of like an oxymoron, but um, just take this journey with me for a moment. Here, here's the truth. Our enemy, the devil, hates unity because he knows how much power is in it. I think sometimes we miss how much power is in it, but he understands what was happening at Babel. He knows that there is a supernatural power to unity and that it can actually work both ways, right? Because in the Tower of Babel, People were unified. They were one people with one language of one mind. We we're going to do this thing. We're going to build this tower that stretches up into the heavens. Most commentators don't think they actually thought they could get to heaven, but this probably was uh, intended for some type of worship uh, of, of another false god or uh, whatever that was. But the bottom line is they were unified of one mind, and because of that, God said whatever they intend to do, whatever they purpose to do, they're going to get it done. So much to the degree that I, I'm going to come down and intervene. I'm going to confuse their languages and scatter them. It's the only way we're going to stop them at this point. Why? Because they're unified. What does that mean? That means God built into humanity a momentum and a power that comes when we unify. So the devil hates unity. We're going to have to fight him. Our own flesh hates unity because it forces us to care more about reconciliation and right standing with others than our feelings or being right. And that is not always enjoyable. That is never enjoyable, actually. We're always going to need God's help to be joyful about the process of caring about the unity of Christ's body more than our personal feelings or concerns or issues in a given moment. So, if, if we're going to have to fight for unity, what are the barriers? What, what are the attacks that are going to come? What, what are the issues that the church is up against? Uh, most common barriers to unity. First of all, you probably saw this coming, and that's fine, but pride. Pride is the mother of every other sin. I don't know if that's true. Sit and think about it longer. You'll know it's true. 
Pride is the mother of every other sin. And so it is always needing to be overcome by the power of the Spirit so that unity can flourish. Pride will stand in the way of us having anything that looks like the unity Jesus prayed for in John 17 or the unity that even was working in reverse at the Tower of Babel. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We can't expect to get anything done with pride hiding in our hearts. The second common barrier to unity is offense. Offense. Offense is a common tool of the enemy to promote discord among God's people. And often, uh, when offense is not dealt with, it leads to bitterness, which is one of the fastest ways to quench the Spirit's work in your life and in the life of the church. Allowing an offense to go undealt with will invariably lead to bitterness. Bitterness is one of the fastest ways to quench the Spirit's work in your life and in the life of the church. D.L. Moody said it this way. He said, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people are divided. It's true. You are the one that is responsible. You are. To gauge yourself, to submit yourself in prayer to examination by the Holy Spirit to see if you are offended. Okay? You can't... (laughs) Here's one of Satan's traps. I'm offended, but I'm going to act like I'm not and see if anybody notices. Okay? That's, I'm going to spin this because something bad is going to happen. Will it spin? Yes. All right. There we go. If you kick over a podium, you lose everybody. It's gone forever. So, um, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that it's your responsibility. Oh, yeah, I didn't forget. It's your responsibility to check whether you're offended or not. It's your responsibility to ask the Holy Spirit to show you whether or not you have a fence hiding in your heart that's festering into bitterness, okay? Now, should the people of God uh, be a part of reaching in and trying to ask you good questions and poke and, and figure out, hey, is there anything going on in there that we can talk about? And Yeah, absolutely. That's all absolutely true, and it's part of the function of vibrant, authentic community within God's house. But if you have made it six months with an offense hiding in your heart that's festered into bitterness, um, you have one person to blame, and that's you. That, that was a real quiet response. Are you not sure that's true? Is that the problem? Or are you examining yourself right now because you think, oh, well, maybe, okay, yeah, I need to check. It's on you, man. It's, that's a you and Jesus thing. But Satan doesn't want you to think that. He, it's everybody else's issue. Well, they should come to me first. Listen, man. <laughs> Jesus on the cross solved that problem for us. Because before anybody, they were still actively at the base of the cross, gambling for his clothes. They were still hurling insults upon the perfect king of glory. And he pulled himself up on those nails so that he could get a breath, so that he could say this phrase, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That should help all of us, from holding offense against other people. man. They haven't said they're sorry. That doesn't mean you can't forgive them. Now, I don't have time to go into relational dynamics and what that means, and some, you can forgive without having to be in full restored relationship. That's another, we can talk about that later. But here's the bottom line. You cannot ever allow offense to just sit in your heart and not deal with it. Not take that to Jesus. Even if that person... Isn't, isn't willing to or understanding of the need for reconciliation or restoration, you and Jesus can handle that. Don't let offense turn into bitterness, man. That will kill, that will kill unity. Satan will use it every time. The third ties closely to offense. It's unforgiveness. Uh, Matthew 18, uh, Peter rolls up. He's feeling real spiritual. He says, Master, how many times should I forgive somebody in one day? Up to seven times? And he kind of stands there in his own mind like his teeth twinkle a little bit, right? Because he thinks he's just said something very impressive. If you're willing to forgive someone seven times in a day, you're a pretty gracious person. Really getting this grace thing. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does what he does to all of us. He drops an atom bomb on him and he's like, actually take your number and times it times 70. That's 490 times a day. And what is Jesus actually saying? Is he saying you should carry around a tablet and make hash marks till you get to 490, and then at 491 you get to go, boom! 
boom, no forgiveness, right? Like, is that really what Jesus is saying? No. What Jesus is saying is, if you get to 490 times in a day that you're offended, you might be the problem. <laughs> let, you, let you take that one to prayer. That's, that's really what he's saying. <laughs> please, just please listen to me for a moment. I know half of you are ticked off about everything, all that. That's fine. If we would all just stop as soon as we realize we are mad or offended with someone, and we would pray, asking God to give us just a fraction of the mercy and patience he has had with us, we would be twice as effective on our mission immediately. If we would pray for just a fraction of the mercy and grace that's been given to us, that's the problem. That's the parable of the wicked servant. The only way you hold bitterness and unforgiveness against other people, the only way you can do it is by forgetting of how much you've been forgiven. And we all look at the parable of the wicked servant, it's like, man, that guy is an idiot, right? You don't know the parable of the wicked servant? Here's, here's the, either you don't know the parable or I lost you all. So here's the parable of the wicked servant. Guy goes in before the king, owes a lifetime worth of money. The king says, I'm feeling generous today, you are forgiven. Bro rolls out of the king's court, goes and finds a guy that owes him 10 bucks, chokes him, demands that he be put in jail until he can pay everything back. Some of the other servants are like, oh, no. So they go into the king. They're like, hey, king, that guy you just forgave a whole lifetime worth of salary? He went out, choked this dude over 10 bucks, and had him thrown in jail. And the Bible says the king was not happy. He called that guy in, said, you're done for. What does that mean? What's the point of the parable? The point of the parable is you need to understand your propensity to be servant number one. To forget of how much you've been forgiven. To forget that right now you are being forgiven actively. That God's grace is upon you and if it wasn't, you'd be in hell. Right now. Okay. I know people are tough. I know people give us lots of reasons. Not to forgive them. To want to smack them instead of hug them. I get that. But because of Jesus, we can't live that way. Even in our hearts. We have to be quick to forgive. And unforgiveness will hinder unity. It does hinder unity. It is hindering unity. Let's not let this stay theoretical, right? Let's push this all the way to the reality of what it is. Now, some of you might be thinking, aren't we being a little too serious about this? You know, you're talking about the devil working against unity, and you're talking like we're doomed if the church doesn't walk in unity. You know, all this kind of sounds like maybe it's a bit much. Maybe you're just, you know, a little preacher hyperbole here. Let me read you a couple things. First of all, I don't think so just because of what Jesus said in John 17, but Let's, let's hear what James has to say about it. If you look at James 3.16, he says this. For where jealousy, this is the NASB, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Let me read you the King James Version. For where envying and strife is, selfish, so jealousy and selfish ambition, envying and strife, these are antithetical. These are the opposite of unity. Where those things are, KJV says, there is confusion and every evil work. Both NASB says every evil thing, the other one says every evil work. What does that mean? That means when we allow ourselves to walk in disunity, when we let strife and discord, uh, seeds of that be sown among us, we let those things take root, when we let unforgiveness and bitterness just have its way, when all these things are present, what does it say is also present? Every evil work. Okay, so... I don't know if maybe you're, you think I'm hyper-spiritual and so I'm bringing the devil into this. And it's like, man, it's not that big a deal. It is that big a deal. And I don't know about you, but this world is tough enough without having the forces of darkness being given a hall pass to come and mess in my life. It's hard enough to be the church of God in the time and place that we are battling all the other things that we're battling to not have us throwing open the door to every evil thing and saying, come on in, hang out in here. Come on in, impede God's work in here. 
Every time we choose unforgiveness, every time we choose bitterness, every time we choose not to care about the unity that King Jesus cared about when he prayed in John 17, every single time we choose those things, we, we, we can't just see it as a passive thing. Well, well, I just can't, I just can't be in unity with that person right now, or I just, I just can't care about that right now. I'm too overwhelmed. It's not just a passive thing. You are also actively saying to the forces of darkness and every evil thing, hey, over here. Come mess around in my life. So if some of you have been really struggling, if some of you are really worried about whether or not the forces of darkness are just having a heyday in your life, you can't figure out where everything seems busted and broke on the inside and the outside in your life, take a moment and ask Jesus to help you shine a light in your heart and see if some roots of bitterness and unforgiveness are there, if you're walking in a lack of unity with anybody. It'll help you. I'm just trying to help you. I'm not yelling at you, man. I just want to see Jesus' dream come true. Really, that's what I see in John 17. I see the dream of my king, and I just want to be a part of it. I just want to be a part of him being able to look down and say, that's what I was talking about. That's it right there. I hope you care about that. I hope you want to be a part of that. It's going to take the Holy Ghost help to do it. I just want to make Jesus happy and the devil mad. Let me read you Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 5. Therefore I, this is Paul, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just also, as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let me read verse 3 again. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You see, some of you weren't sure earlier when I threw this mantle on you and I said, this is up to you. I hope you're sure now. As there is an acknowledgement in the scriptures that sometimes people will refuse to be at peace with you. Yes, but that doesn't get us off the hook. As much as it has to do with us, we're to seek to be at peace with all men. We, by the power of the Spirit, seek to walk in unity. Unity is our responsibility. It's your responsibility. Amen. I'm glad Jesus never just gives us impossible things to do without also promising to help us do them. Because I realize everything I'm saying to you is impossible if we're only calculating in the natural. If we're just looking at the tolerance level we have, the love level we have, if we're just looking at our own patience and our own ability to forgive, if we're just looking at the tools we have in and of ourselves, this, this, this is pointless conversation. But thankfully, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people that have been empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And so the same Jesus that prayed these prayers in John 17 now lives in us and empowers us to obey these things. Hopefully, as this bar gets set impossibly high, you realize again how much you really need Jesus. And that's oftentimes what the scriptures are doing, just helping us remember how much we need him. So we've made a case for the importance of unity We've said that we are all responsible to work towards it individually. At Love City, we identify three areas that we want to see love and unity win and pride and discord lose. Three areas, okay? First of all is in our homes. First level, in our homes. We will have unity nowhere else if we don't have it in our homes first. Now, something I want to say is, right off the bat, somebody that maybe... Uh, lives alone because they are single out of intentional devotion to the Lord or they are not yet married but desire to be one day, you could feel like, well, how do I have unity in my home if I'm the only one in my home? Well, here's the reality. Uh, you cannot be in unity with yourself. <laughs> the book of James says the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways and should expect to receive nothing from the Lord. You understand that you could be sitting there by yourself internally conflicted about whether or not we're going to serve Jesus actually or whether or not we're going to we're going to really do this thing or we're going to walk this all the way out or whether or not I'm going to make the next right choice or I'm going to try to honor God with my life. We, 
you, you, could, you could have a lack of unity with yourself, but also you, you want to understand that even if you uh, live alone now as, as a choice to, to serve the Lord, you've made that intentional and you're gifted for that, praise God, we rejoice with you and we celebrate you because that is a, a rare and powerful gift. Paul says it's real. Uh, if that's you, you still have a responsibility to have unity in your home with your neighbors, with everyone around. Uh, that's, that's absolutely real, but you also need to be unified in your own thoughts um, and, and not be double-minded. So, and really, you're in unity with, with Christ. For those of you that are married, have children, obviously it, it, that picture kind of makes sense, right? Like there are other people in the room, and now disunity is possible very easily, right? Because you've got other opinions and mouths uh, and temperature preferences and whatever, you know, just all the stuff. So um, one of the prayers that I've, I've prayed from the, the onset, from the beginning of, of Los City is that um, every single person that's a member here, that, that literally the threshold, and I mean the doorway of their home, is, 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 is literally anointed. And when people step into the threshold of the homes of people that are a part of Love City, that the peace of God rests upon them. Uh, and I hope you pray that over my home and over your own home as well. So we're unified in our prayers because there's power in that too. Uh, but I, I am hoping our homes are a sanctuary of peace. It's a place where not only when we're there with our family, unity and peace abounds, but also when people are brought in, they tangibly in a manifest way experience that. Um, and, and I hope that's a desire for you. Uh, if it's not, I'm, pr- I'm trying to pray it on your house. So, <laughs> you know, sorry, I'll probably win. Um, but... The bottom line is, do, we, we have to think about the fact that unity is going to be attacked in our homes. Uh, Satan absolutely wants a wedge between every husband and wife. He can possibly get it. He wants a wedge between every uh, father and uh, mother and their children as he can get. Every single place he can create division or discord, he's going to do it. And he's going to try to do it in the home. Uh, absolutely. And so we have to stand against that. We have to believe God for unity in our homes. If we don't have it in our homes, we're not going to have it in the next place, which is in our church family. So when, when we are, uh, we have to be about unity when we're scattered, but also when we are gathered and when we are uh, assembled for mission, not just gathering like this, but when we're doing things uh, to try to push this gospel forward uh, in a unified way, we, we, we desire unity in the family of God. And this can be difficult. It can be really difficult because the dynamics of you know, two, three, four, five, six, you know, uh, the average family size, that, that just increases. You've got more variation in preferences and more opportunities for offense as the, the size of the family grows as you move from your home to the bigger assembly of God's people. And so it seems like disagreements and misunderstandings and misaligned priorities are often able to cause schisms that steal momentum and progress for the gospel. And so the question is, how do we avoid this, right? How do we avoid this? Think about this with me. This, this is an analogy I hope will help. Imagine that there's two firefighters. One is named Dave and Joe. I actually know a firefighter named Joe, so I went with it. Okay, there's two firefighters. One's Dave, one's Joe. They work the same shifts at the firehouse, and so they're constantly together. They work together, they eat together, they even sleep in the same bunkhouse, okay? One day, Dave and Joe get into an argument about which way the firehouse toilet paper should face, right? Dave says up, Joe says down, and they both had mothers that were very adamant about this age-old debate, and so they taught them to be as well, right? Basically, there's no tolerance here. If you don't do this the right way, there's something wrong with you, right? That's the mentality they have. So neither one of them is willing to budge because their mama told them not to. They're, they're angry about it. They argue about it for hours. Neither one can understand what the heck is wrong with the other person. How could you think that this makes sense, man? That's where they're at. They argue for hours, even to the point where Joe pushes Dave into a door. And just when everyone thinks they're about to see these two guys throw fists over the toilet paper direction, the fire alarm goes off. And they hear over the radio that a daycare has caught fire and that their children inside. Both men spring into action with their comrades. They get to the fire. Dave and Joe are actually side by side, unrolling the heavy hoses off of the truck to douse that fire with water. And there's no mention whatsoever about the teepee disagreement. 
The men all work together. They get the children out safely. And then they celebrate and congratulate one another on a job well done. My question to you is, what happened? How did Dave and Joe go from ready to knock each other out over this silly argument to helping each other side by side? What happened? The importance of the argument was made minuscule in light of the mission. What happened was the fire alarm went off. What happened was they realized there's something much more important going on right now than which way the toilet paper faces in the firehouse. Because there's a fire out here. There's a bunch of kids that are going to die if we can't get it together, get unified, and get this job done. And why am I saying that? Because I'm saying every single argument we would have within the house of God is as stupid as the toilet paper argument in the firehouse when you understand what our mission is. Because we're talking about the eternities of men and women. We're talking about people forever, either being with God or not with God. And so when you hold that in one hand, and then you hold up whatever the last thing you were offended about is, or the last thing you got out of unity with somebody about was, how stupid does that look? That was a great place to say amen. You totally missed it. Is that right or wrong? In light of the mission, the argument became minuscule. It became of no importance. We have to keep that mentality. This is not a game. This is not a social gathering. This is a people assembled for a mission. The same mission Jesus is on. In our homes, in our church family, and in the church globally is the third way we pray for and hope to see unity flourish. Uh, When we say the church globally, we mean basically just acknowledging the fact that Dave and Joe's toilet paper argument stretches basically, (laughs) the, the, the stupidity of that stretches into the life of the church globally. We oftentimes end up arguing and dividing over things that do not matter in light of who the church is being the bride of Christ and what the church is called to do, bring the gospel to a lost and dying world. Uh, There are over style preferences and and things that just don't matter that are way down the tiers. Uh, I don't mean crying tears, I mean level tiers. Way down the tiers of importance. We'll have people separate. Uh, We have different denominations that like to uh, criticize one another over, over style differences that oftentimes probably just many times comes down to personality. It's not gospel issues. The way we tend to think about that is, listen, there, there are open-hand and closed-hand topics. There are closed-hand things that if you don't believe these things, you are not a Christian. And there are organizations that call themselves churches that do not count, okay? They actually do not qualify if you look at what they believe and what they do, okay? There are three marks that have been historically looked at to, to verify whether a, a church is actually a part of the body of Christ. Those three marks are this. Gospel proclamation, faithful, whole gospel proclamation, the administration of the ordinances, that's baptism and communion, and the third is church discipline. That means if somebody is in sin, they're going to actually do something about it. They're going to call them out and deal with it because they love them. Those are the three marks the church has used historically, okay? you got a lot of places saying, hey, Jesus loves you. Hey, they're telling half the gospel. They're not dealing with anything. You can't find the sacraments with a search warrant. You don't know what's going on, and there isn't there isn't these marks that, that, that is true, man. There, there are places that, the, the part of the gospel that says, hey, pick up your cross and follow me, the part of the gospel that calls people to sacrifice as opposed to just being a consumer, those things are missing. So yes, I understand there are places that call themselves churches that are not churches and we cannot align with them because of that. However, yes, that's true, but also there's a whole bunch of people that really love Jesus and are really preaching the whole gospel, and it may just look a little different than the way somebody else does it, and they're divided from another, and they're picking fights with one another and throwing stones at one another, and it's stupid, and they should be praying for each other and grabbing each other's hand and trying to do war against the real enemy that's trying to take all of us out. Will you pray for unity in the church globally, man? Will you pray for unity among God's people here at Love City? And will you pray for unity in your own home? Will you join me in that prayer? I hope you will. Unity is of the utmost importance for the people of God. And it is only possible because of Jesus and his gospel. Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel is the epitome of our natural tendencies. 
It is easy for us to unify around the selfish pursuit of our own fame and legacy. We will unify with others to the point that we think they can help us get higher. But Jesus showed us a better way. Let me read you Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How? How do we do all that? That sounds impossible. Here's how you do it. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Friends, in Genesis 11, they got unified around trying to make themselves high. But Jesus showed us a better way. He said, get unified around this. Come get low with me. He went first. They tried to go high, man. He went low. Here's the real way to joy. Here's, here's the real way to purpose. Here's the real way to God. Don't try to build some stupid tower. Get low. Serve and love and consider one another more important than yourselves. Follow me. Follow my footsteps because that's what I did. That's what Christ did. He considered you mere mortal Clay feet, jacked up as you are. Jesus considered you more important than himself. That's how he went and died for you. That's the way. That's the better way. It's following the gospel footsteps that Jesus laid out for us. Why'd you call me jacked up? I'm in there with you. You get that, right? Every single one of us is in serious trouble. Every single one of us is riddled with brokenness and the effects of sin. Every single one of us is battling against that, and yet Philippians 2 tells us how Jesus dealt with that. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And even though he was in the appearance of a man, he, didn't, that was, he wasn't worried about that. He took the form of a servant and went to death and even death on a cross. That's the better way. That's the way of the master. That's the way we're called to walk and to live May we be a people marked by unity. May we be a part of the answer to King Jesus' prayer when he asked God that we may be one as he and the Father are one. May we walk in a manner worthy of bearing the name of Christ. I wish, I wish we'd pray that over ourselves. God, help me walk in a manner worthy of bearing the name of Christ. May selfishness, offense, and discord not even be named among us. May we be quick to forgive, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And may we have the joy that our Savior prayed we would as we walk in unity together. And may these things lead to the world acknowledging that the power of the gospel really does change men and women. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Genesis 11. We thank you for showing. We learn a lot about ourselves as we look at the Tower of Babel. We learn, Lord, that we are prone to selfish ambition and we are prone to a, a unity around rebellion. But God, we're asking for your help to have unity around surrender. Help us as your people to walk in the unity that you prayed for, Lord Jesus. Help us to join you in that prayer. May our hearts truly, deeply desire to honor you and to walk out your dream of your people being in such unity that the world would be struck in awe. God, may it be said one day, instead of thick as thieves, close as Christians, may that be the best example someone can think of of loyal, unified, love-filled people 
It's Christians. It's Jesus followers. They're the ones. You want to see what it looks like to really walk hand in hand in true, authentic relationship and community. Look at the Christians. Lord Jesus, please accept and receive our repentance that oftentimes thus far that has not been the case. Lord, oftentimes we are pulled into temptation and believing that trivial things that don't matter are worthy of us arguing over. Or even if some of us aren't bold enough to open our mouths about it, just holding bitterness in our heart about it. God, please, please heal us. Help us. We are prone to the sin sickness of offense and bitterness and strife. We are prone to gossip. We need your help. We need the help of your Holy Spirit not to do these things. Lord, help us as much as it depends on us to be at peace with every person. Help us to, with intentionality, preserve the unity of the bond of peace. Lord Jesus, help us walk out your dream. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for spending some of those last precious moments praying for us. May we join you in that not just in our prayers, but in action. Thank you for the help of your Holy Spirit. None of this is possible without you. We need you, Jesus. Thank you that you promised to be with us. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.